0: Hello, Diet Soap viewers and listeners, it's me again, Douglas Lane, and this interview with Michael Albert uh, is, is a one-off, uh, but in the parrot room, you're going to be uh, getting uh, an interview with uh, Kinzo Shibata, and he and I discuss what it means for him to be uh, gender queer. Um, so he, he, should I say he's, he sets me straight in the parrot room? Maybe. Anyway, uh, tune in for that uh, on the Patreon and enjoy this conversation with Michael Albert, uh, the inventor of Paracon. The most orthodox of all Marxist economists I have ever met. The reason why I'm still a Marxist is that I claim that this structure of belief
1: of displaced belief. You find it in what Marx described as commodity
0: fetishism.
1: That all really dialectical and intelligent human beings will have a sense
0: for evil and some sympathy for the devil, or they will be just a little stifled and void. I think that's not wrong. Just a little sympathy for the devil will hurt. Inside Critical Theory brings you this Diet Soap interview. Well, Michael Albert, welcome back, and welcome to my new YouTube channel. I think that's you're going to be coming up on the the new one here. Um, uh, We have been talking for several months about uh, Paracon. We have a book coming out um, called No Bosses, Uh, so I want to help you uh, get the word out about that book. But before we started recording, we were talking about the weird situation that the whole country is in right now. Um, which sometimes may be missed by people on the left, but uh, you know, there's a, the supply chain crisis. There's a labor shortage. There's inflation, <clears throat> and oh, I don't know what all else. But but it seems as though oh, there's um, uh, uh, a, a lack of of consumption as well. I think you know the, there's fewer people purchasing things. Um because how can you how how could there how could there be more people purchasing things when you when you try to purchase things, they're not there. So, <laughs> you know, I I have a broken uh, smartphone, uh, which I by calling it a smartphone, by the way, that apparently dates me. I'm very old when I think of it as a smartphone. It's just a phone. I have an old phone uh. and I need to get a new one. <laughs> and I tried to buy a new one and it they're saying like it will arrive in mid-December. Uh You know, if I'm lucky. In fact, I think the order got canceled. Um, So uh, anyhow, we're talking about the fact that in the United States and maybe around the world, we've got a very strange economic moment. And part of the picture is that there are fewer workers who are wanting to work and there are massive strikes and uh, there's a labor shortage. Mm. And I'm I'm wondering how you view it from the perspective of someone who wants to see workers empowered. You know, you have this Paracon model. Um, yeah how how do you think about the current labor shortage, and is it a good sign in some way for the left, or or not?
1: Yeah, I think it is good. Um, not that you know, people are disrupted, people are hurting. That's not good. That's never good. But the response does seem to be, but it seems to be quite remarkable because it's it's almost like a national strike. I mean, it's it's sort of sort of like that but it's not organized um it's not as if there is um an organization or even a set of organizations i mean sure you know teachers are striking and that's organized and nurses are striking and that's organized and uh, uh you know the coal miners and not there are people who are striking and it is it resembles what we're used to um that is it resembles uh institutions, organizations of the left and uh, unions and so on, agitating and finally striking. Okay, so that's not unfamiliar. There's more of it. That's a good thing. Obviously. But at the same time, there's something else, which is lots of people, without discussion even, without interaction, simultaneously changing their attitude about relating to the economy. I don't think it's that people are deciding they don't want to work, period. I think it's people are deciding they don't want to work in undignified, underpaid, uh, you know, uh, denigrating, debilitating circumstances. But they're not moving toward fighting. They're just withholding. I mean, I don't understand it either. uh, But I certainly don't think it's bad that, that working people are taking note of the circumstances of their work, as well as the payment for their work. And that seems to be the case, um, quite widely that there's no, uh, organizational, uh, impetus of the thing, um, suggests that it might not last and that it might not mature into something even greater, but hopefully it will, I guess we'll see, uh, I, I know that's vague, and it reflects the fact that I'm vague about this. I don't, I yeah. don't have a good feeling for exactly what's happening or even why.
0: Yeah. It's, it's interesting um, to me because, uh, like, I have multiple theories about it, and some of them are kind of dark. Um, I know that since 2008, uh, the number of people who are kind of no longer counted as employable who don't get counted uh, when you count the unemployment statistics um, has grown. Mm -hmm. And I worry that the labor shortage, um, uh, the the fact that the unemployment rate is not through the roof, but there's a labor shortage um, uh, strikes me as possibly explained by the fact that we have a lot of unemployable people in the country, people who are, you know, no longer looking for work and haven't been for so long that they don't right. count. Um, uh, but I'm not sure about that uh, as, as being the explanation. Um, I mean, it, the other piece of it would be the increase in homelessness that right. seems to be going on, but I only have anecdotal <clears throat> evidence to support that. I just can go to downtown Portland and see the n- number of homeless encampments and how, they, how they're how I dominating mean, the downtown area. It's
1: different in different places. It's certainly threatening to get out of hand. That's true.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so I worry about that. <clears throat> and then you, if you in, add in the fact that we have a supply chain crisis, so we have like a labor shortage, but we also have a shortage of raw materials or consumer goods, which would mean that in the service sector, there's simultaneously not enough people to do the job and also not enough goods for there to be need to do the job. It it's, a, it's also
1: often that they can't transport them. They can't move them. And so you see these strange formulations that they're willing to pay almost bounties or they're, they're willing to bribe people to drive trucks and to, you know, to do various things in order to move the stuff. And then the ship's that's on. There's another phenomenon that's, uh, that almost is parallel to this. It's also strange. So, you know, the work-at-home dynamic, uh, uh, which obviously during the pandemic, you know, was rooted in the pandemic, that, that giant increase in work-at-home, and that the, the inclination of many to want to do that and to see that as an improvement in their circumstances. And in some sense, it is. You don't have to commute, and commuting is painful uh, and costly. Hmm. On the other hand... Um, it's a little bit scary uh, because it basically takes the workforce and scatters it all over the place, making it very difficult to fight uh, for better circumstances and better wages and the like. And there's mm-hmm. another side to it that I don't think anybody talks much about, which consider a big city, it'll consider New York. So if if there is a trend or a trans, transition, call it, uh, to significant numbers of office workers working at home, that means all those tall buildings in New York are going to be partially occupied, um, mm-hmm. right, with, mm-hmm. with a significant reduction, um, and maybe even a, a major reduction. That means all those stores and, and businesses throughout New York City on the first floor are basically done. I mean, just that fast. I mean, there's, it, it means – I don't know what it means, but it, it's a it's major – I mean, that's a, you know, people talk about it like it's not that big a thing. If there's really a transition from working in workplaces to working at home, it's immense.
0: Yeah, no, there's a lot of, I've been working at home for a long time now, and I can tell you there's an upside to it, but there's also a major downside to it. The yeah. downside is work never really stops. It's uh, you're, you're,
1: exactly understood by the employers.
0: <clears throat> the private, the private, like your private life and your work life are not separated. Yeah. And, um. Also, you're probably, I mean, I think in my case, it's true and it's not good. You're probably going to be more sedentary overall. Um, You have less less reason to to get out and move around on a daily basis. Um, uh, I would also think that uh, the increase in um, precarious work uh, through freelancing and and contracting is going to increase with the movement away from these storefronts. Uh, near offices and instead yeah. to going to a model where everything's like doordash you yeah. want something you get it delivered amazon will get more and more powerful uh as pretty much everything is going to be deliverable um uh so yeah i think uh these yeah, are all, all that
1: stuff's dystopian basically uh, yeah but on the other hand the mindset has positive aspects to it and it's, so the issue really is an issue for us, because um, like it's to organize. Um, it's to find a way to actually intervene in this whole thing and have an impact on what direction things move in and whether they keep moving in a positive direction. But absent that, well, absent that, we know what will happen. Uh, yeah. The side that has power will take advantage of a change that comes along.
0: Yeah. So with with Paragon, you have this idea of job complexes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: um how would that how would those if if you wanted to start to implement Paragon in this environment, could you do it in a situation where people were working from home and people were and their the level of labor was down, and there was a a sense that people wanted to basically take back their lives and get paid for for living? Uh, privately rather than being involved in a public institution like a work
1: I don't know it's a good question um, the idea of a balanced job complex is simple enough not that complicated in a workplace you want a situation where the workforce if, if you want a situation where the workforce take the responsibility for the decisions so the workers are making decisions and the community the citizens are making decisions but if, if you want that then you also have to want, the workers to be inclined to make decisions prepared to make decisions have a personality have a, a level of confidence have a level of connection to others etc etc consistent with being a good decision maker otherwise you get bad decisions so so you want all that you want uh jobs essentially not to disempower most people empower a few and the few make the decisions you want instead the whole workforce to be comparably empowered. Okay, how do you do that if 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 work is uh, atomized? That I think is maybe the key aspect. It's not so much home or not home. It's atomized. So in other words, workers. So what does that do to the tasks? Is it possible to have a combination of tasks, um, you know, that that isn't Uh, heavily weighted toward either empowering or disempowering. And what does it even mean to be empowered as an atom, separated from everybody else, distant from everybody else? I have no idea. I mean, these are things um, Mm -hmm. that I don't think anybody knows for sure. My inclination would be to say, yeah, you can do it, but would you want to do it? In other words, in a good economy, in a good society, do we want to atomize the population? you know, to keep it as separate one from another as possible. Is that really the road to a better society? Uh, I'm just inclined to think so. Um,
0: It was already on, you know, the pandemic really intensified this, but it was already a trend, right? I mean, remote working was already on the rise. Certainly um, having things delivered rather than going out to stores um, was already trending upwards significantly um and i i think it does look i just know as a as someone who used to work in a call center that if i could have done that job from home which i could have technologically mm-hmm. i would have preferred that it was a 2 hour commute i went to a, a a situation i didn't feel connected to my fellow workers i i felt alienated from everyone in that call right. center right. And, <clears throat> and i was being uh surveilled all the time and um i
1: but you're saying under A system like ours, a grotesque Mm -hmm. abomination, right? Right. Um, One thing is less abominable than another. Yeah, no, but I agree with you. I agree with you. I
0: think that's why atomization is attractive, because it does present itself as a kind of liberation. Yeah, a little
1: bit better than abominable i agree and it is a little better than abominable right Mm -hmm. um in in various respects i'm not sure over the long term it is but in other words even other things equal but if you have massive agitation for a better society then i'm not so sure that it would appeal to people so much that if workplaces were equitable and self-managing and if the world out there was you know uh, uh congenial and uh, uh positive experience i don't think people would want to spend their lives behind four walls um i just don't so i agree so so i i agree with you completely that you know being <laughs> not being boiled to death being <laughs> slow cooked to death is probably better but uh, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess the the up the optimistic thing to consider, the the way to find some hope in this moment is to see the the strikes, the kind of informal yeah. arrangement, as <clears throat> useful. But my my fear, having been around a little bit, is that without institutional uh, power and organizational power, that this will just dissipate. That the these yeah. moments of up of, of uprising, moments of resistance, they come and they go. I've seen it happen again and again. Yeah. Occupy would have been, I think, actually a smaller, less significant moment like this one. We're kind of missing it on the left that it's happening, but it's happening in a bigger way, I think, right now
1: than yeah, and, and with more constituencies. I think that's yeah. true. Uh, yeah. But Occupy had a little bit more cohesion. Among the people who were doing it, a lot more cohesion among the people yeah, who right. were doing it. But a broader spectrum of people is now involved in this. Yeah, I agree with you.
0: Yeah, this is even I less political just, than the yellow vest movement, right? Which was also, yeah, you yeah, know, a similar yeah. kind of situation. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's absolutely right that missing is organization and connection, and uh, but also I think vision. That is, I think. It's very, if what you have your eyes on, the prize that you have your eyes on is a short distance from where you are. In other words, the prize is a, a higher minimum wage. The prize is a, a little more flexibility in work hours. The prize you know, So if you have your eyes on that kind of a prize, it's easy uh, either if you lose or if you win to dissipate. If you have your eyes on a new society, but you believe in making progress in the and having that progress lead toward that future thing, uh, you're not as likely to, to dissipate. I don't think you don't dissipate at all. I mean, I could lose a thousand times. It's not going to change the commitment to where I want to go. And, uh,
0: well you know when you say that so I that agree matters. with you. I, I when you say that I agree with you, I'm going to say something that's very Marxist, maybe in the worst sense, but um, yeah you know, I expect you to push back on me as hard as you want. But it seems to me that in order for people to hold on to a vision for a better society, they have to have a, 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 some sort of political party that they're involved in that is seeking oh, yeah. political power.
1: That's, there's nothing Marxist particularly about that. Mm-hmm. What you're saying is that, I mean, a different way of saying the same thing is to, to retain commitments and to act on them. You need to be the isolated warrior. That's very, very hard to do. There's no sustenance. There's no help. There's no sense of camaraderie. And what's more, you're weak. Um mm-hmm. And so, yes, organization is essential. I agree with you. It's also essential because organizations sort of congeal experience and you don't have to start over again, right? So, Mm -hmm. in other words, when it's movements that arise and decline, each one starts from scratch, more or less. Organizations and um, constituencies relating to can keep growing, you know. Can keep building upon they've done. They don't go for a while, lose, and start over again, and have to start from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. So, for all those reasons, uh, uh, I'm not sure what's Marxist about it, uh, except insofar as Marxists are often, you know, more often than not, very sensible, and it's sensible. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah.
0: Right. To. to- so, right, to, to have some sort of workers party that's seeking state power, at least in in the short term, like that's not, not the horizon of the vision, even for, you know, very statist communists, that's not supposed to be the end goal the, is right. the, state right. power. Now but you've I,
1: elaborated a bit. Mm-hmm. You slid some stuff under the surface there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, a... Political organization, do you want to call it a party? I don't care. A political organization that has a structure that uh, provides for its membership, that amplifies their skills and talents into more pressure. So far, we agree, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Then the next question is what is it trying to do? Right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm fine with uh, it trying to win power throughout society. Throughout societies, important institutions, and what are those? Well, workplaces, the government, and uh, also, you know, religious institutions, like churches, mm-hmm. uh, schools, etc., cetera, et cetera. So, I'm with you. Um, when you focus in a priori ahead of time on one purpose, you start to lose me a little because I don't think we know that that's what makes most sense, right? Mm-hmm. And anybody who thinks that what makes most sense is either winning elections or somehow occupying the government and taking it over, and who sees instead a national strike, or who sees instead something else which is pushing everything forward and has the vision and etc. etc. will support it.
0: Well, I just remember May of '68, you know, and how there was a national strike that was that was certainly probably more politically cohesive, more focused on creating a, a better society, more more politically conscious. Yeah,
1: it was all and, those things in space, yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah, and um, it was what some something like ten million workers in France were on strike at one point.
1: And um, the 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 scale of it was humongous the scale of what happened in greece not that long ago was also humongous right. right after the after the repression of the anarchists in the anarchist neighborhood that literally was what spurred it and and france in 68 was spurred by changes in the rules in dormitories um
0: yeah that was one know. of the things yeah that it was, was it start, that was it started the, it started at nanterre yeah. not, not even at the sorbonne it started like yeah. at nanterre yeah. uh a guy named uh Danny the Red or something like that. Uh, he was later up.
1: Daniel Combady. But <laughs> it, it was, he, was, he was just one of the leaders. But it started just with, uh, you know,
0: no changes
1: role. that yeah. people didn't like and they demonstrated against. And there was repression and slowly it grew up. And it was mm-hmm. beneath the surface that obviously there was a whole lot of desire and anger. Look, there was
0: also a group of sectarian Marxists behind the scenes, calling, pulling all the strings, and writing very important books, like the Society of the Spectacle. Anyway, but there, there's a mythos uh, about around yeah, Board and. Uh, but, in so, any but, event. But, but let me, but let me just all actually right. t- uh, say what I really believe in, not okay. the nonsense. Um, w- what I really believe is that, despite the successes that came out of that moment, and despite how big the movement was, what made it. Collapse. The way it was overcome was through the, you know, not even the very harsh use of state power, and the and changing the uh, terms uh, from you know occupying factories and and occupying the streets and occupying the universities Mm -hmm. to uh, what do the people want through the ballot And, um, and once and that happened because the state had the ability. To make yeah, the change I, to those terms, and, and then they and the, and the and the student movement and the workers young move, workers movement couldn't get it together to bring forward a political candidate or a political party or political movement or that takes state powers or a program that they could all unify around and get people to right. believe so in, in, in conventional absence, ways through the ballot.
1: An absence yeah. of shared vision and an absence of shared strategy, a disparate kind of a Phenomenon, et cetera, et cetera. But the way I used to think about it back then was okay, so France is moving along and I can't do it. You know, it's moving along and it's moving along. And then all of a sudden, it's just, you know, this incredible surge. And it goes on for a few months and then right back to moving along and moving along. Mm -hmm. So you have, if, you know, if it was a graph, it would be this giant peak. Um, And the the explanation of this is not obvious, right? How do you explain not only the surge, but the decline? And it's a decline that was in people's minds. So in other words, people went from relatively passive, business as usual, to mm-hmm. bedlam, back to relatively passive, business as usual. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that was because... At the begin, you know, at the point of takeoff, so to speak, everybody all of a sudden became incredibly conscious. They understood this, that, and the other thing that they didn't understand the day before or the week before. And mm-hmm. I don't think that at the end it was because they had lobotomy and they forgot all this incredible consciousness. And so they right. went. It's nothing like that. I mm-hmm. think it's more like no hope for a long time. Hope, bedlam, no hope, and what. You know, and so the, the energy was unleashed by this this feeling of power and of the possibility of real change, and that as long as that existed, it went. But when that declined, it didn't. There are pretty credible reports for your state power side of it that NATO tanks were being prepared in France to be mm-hmm. used. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some ways, it might have. Might have led to more rather than less. No, I know. I, don't, days, I think if
0: they had brought in tanks, it would have changed. <clears throat> it would have hardened the movement. Left. It would not have. Yeah, yeah. yeah it would have hardened yeah, the left. I think so it would too. not
1: have. But um, you don't know. But in, in any fact, event. Now, we um, don't know.
0: But but I just think that the fact that they could do it without, without that, that level of violence yeah. was and, what and, really undid.
1: But I do think that it was be, you know, that a big factor. There's lots of factors, undoubtedly. But a big factor was the that the thing was a surge and it was based on hope, which came out of this crazy varietal hours surge and then a bigger surge and then a bigger, you know, uh, but never congealed. Now you're going to say into, and I'm going to agree with you, organized forms, mm-hmm. right? Organized program, shared program. So that basically you have this whole movement. I mean, it's true in the 60s in the United States too. We shared the peace sign. Right? So you could mm-hmm. drive down the street and give the peace sign and somebody in the other car would give the peace sign back. But what we didn't share was w- what do we want beyond ending the war? What mm-hmm. do we want beyond, right? That wasn't shared. And so a few mm-hmm. setbacks and depression sets back in, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't disagree with you in, about that. And so the the emergence of, It isn't just a little organization. Maybe here we would disagree, I don't know. I don't think it's a small, uh, highly talented, highly skilled, maybe highly empathetic, you would add to that, um, and intelligent organization. I think it's a shared political perspective, framework, program, and vision to sustain all that that is widely shared, not Mm -hmm. narrowly shared, with Mm -hmm. a narrow... Look, I'll even grant you, if there's no alternative to the understanding and the comprehension and the program and the vision can only be held by a few people, I'd rather that than by nobody, well, yeah. that they were acting you know, positively than not. But I don't think that's the case, and I think that if it is held by a few, it is highly unlikely that they will retain the good values and the good behavior, so to speak. And the mm-hmm. good agenda, so mm-hmm. I want it held by more, and that's why, um, you know, for me, that's why I write something like No Bosses, which is trying to do what? It's trying to, with regard to the economy, and I don't think the economy is everything. I think we need vision for kinship, and we need it for culture, and we need it for the political system. But for the economy, No Bosses trying to say, look, here's a proposal for a way to do economics other than capitalism and other than 20th century socialism and if if it's no good improve it if it's good then for Christ's sakes let's jointly advocate it let's collectively advocate it and let's use it to develop program and to develop our commitments and then you know improve it as we go i think something like that is going to be necessary what you're pointing to is the failures of these things is that they they come from anger, they come from short-term desire, and they last for relatively short periods. It shouldn't be that surprising. Um,
0: I, I'm going to bring up somebody who, uh, in a weird way, the, the uh, Friedman, uh, the... the uh, oh, gosh. I, I, I somehow, Milton Friedman? Milton Friedman, yes. I'm going to bring up Milton <laughs> Friedman. um you know, he's the neoliberal uh, economist and and uh, uh, you know free market absolutist. That guy, Milton Friedman. Yeah, I yeah. know
1: who you're talking about.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things about Milton Friedman that he would ta- what he would argue is that the great thing about capitalism is that when it's running properly through free market and free association, mm-hmm. is that it actually cuts against corruption. Right, that uh, you you disincentivize. Uh, the authoritarian impulses and, and corruption and so on, he sure. would say. And I don't agree with the, with that uh, and anal- that his conclusions about how capitalism functions, but I do agree with the notion that if we have a system of, uh, of interaction and production um, that f- functions well, it won't really require the best of intentions be in the heads of all the players that it will yeah, disincentivize uh the worst kinds of of behaviors yeah. i can't believe that i couldn't believe remember milton friedman is it that i'm stressed I don't or think it, it has it anything
1: to do with milton friedman i think you're you know but you're observing saying if you have a good society what yeah. that means is you have institutions which actually facilitate and even provoke the kind of good outcomes that you're looking for,
0: right? You don't want the invisible to hand of the market is what the capitalist would say does that, right? Yeah, but and that's I don't nonsense. agree with them. Right, I don't agree with them about th- that doing it, but I think some sort of institutional structure and kind of the un- unwritten or maybe not always consciously understood rules of interaction. They should be set up. They mediate our existence. Yeah, Yeah.
1: but that's exactly what participatory economics does. I know.
0: I know. I know. Yeah.
1: So I mean, or it it claims to do anyway. Yeah. Um, It the it isn't the case now, but I can give you lots of examples of that under participatory economics. It's trying to create a situation in which, basically, for you to get ahead you personally right Mm -hmm. let's say you're a narcissistic egomaniac or whatever the hell right
0: yeah i mean that's only half true okay Okay. go on
1: (laughs) okay so um so so you out for yourself right Mm -hmm. so you want to one set of people thinking about the future would say there's no such thing right in other words the way i like to joke about it is that they say everybody's mother Teresa. okay but every in other words everybody's che everybody's whoever you want um, you know, they'll behave perfectly, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I don't think there's any reason to think that. Um, and uh, certainly antisocial behavior could be way less even now, right? Mm-hmm. But you, you want a situation in which even the person who is um, uh, callous to others, right, to advance self has to behave in a way that also advances others. You know, you can't get ahead by, I mean, of course you can steal things. You can walk down the street and take the ice cream cone out of the kids' hands. But setting that aside for a minute, because that's outlawed in any society, in other mm-hmm. words, you know, but, um, you, there's nothing in the social structure. There's nothing in the roles of society which even allows you to advance by hurting others. To personally advance, you have to um, either do something that is equitable Mm -hmm. and just. You know, you're getting rewards that don't impinge upon others, Mm -hmm. or you're improving everybody's rewards by increasing output or by, uh, you know, improving the quality of jobs and circumstances. That's the way you want to set things up. I agree with you. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, there'll still be violations, but they'll be relatively modest and it also would to be the case that it's almost impossible to get away with anything right not because yeah. of surveillance it's it's because now if you steal and you're good at it right and mm-hmm. so you have a lot of in you have a lot of wealth you have a lot of income from stealing mm-hmm. i can't look at that and say to myself he's a thief right but if you have an equitable society it's impossible to have that kind of wealth, that kind of income. So you, what you'd have to do is risk your reputation and, I guess, being punished, right, uh, to, to steal, and then you'd have to enjoy it in private, right, because you can't display it, right? Yeah. So that's what it means by the, the circumstances sort of start to conspire almost. That's what I think. You yeah,
0: mean. I mean, I absolutely agree with you that an inequity itself sets up corruption, yeah, of course. In this society, it, um, it, and a good example of that would be Elon Musk. Um, it's not so much that you just know it from looking at the level of wealth that he has, although that's a good indicator. Yeah. But if you actually know the details, the way he um, made quite a lot of money at the, in the at the outset, if I understand this correctly, is and I don't want to be litigated against, and I'm worried <laughs> about that in ways I never have been in the past, but. <laughs> but um my understanding and this is not you know i, I look it up for yourself um is that he would op- let people open up paypal accounts in the early days hmm. and if they only had a small amount in there um he would just take it <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um then uh, you know, if they wanted to try to get it back from him, they would have to use a legal system to do so. And if they were so uh, impoverished that they uh, had so little money in the PayPal to begin with, the likelihood would be that they wouldn't have, be able to afford it.
1: He probably told himself he, they, he was doing them a favor. Back in the days when we had South End Press, and yeah. uh, so you, you work with warehouses who distribute stuff, and there's mm-hmm. fees. And I started to look at the at, at the billing from them mm-hmm. and I discovered there were errors every so often. That's okay. You know, there are mistakes. Then I discovered that the errors were always in one direction. Uh-oh. There was never an error that benefited us. There were always errors that benefited them. Right. Hmm. And right. It, it, that's markets. That's actually deemed to be sensible behavior. You try to take advantage of every possibility to accrue market share and wealth, um, including those, and that's corruption. Right? It's right. theft. It's yeah. and of course, if you can, if you have a situation where it's too costly for anybody to challenge it, um, right, yeah, you know, uh,
0: and you and you probably didn't challenge these distributors. I guess it was well, your distributors. Well, we You did, and and did did you win?
1: Yeah, but what we did is we stopped paying, and we continued, and we talked them into doing the books, and so the printer. This was the printer who who, where we found these things. Uh, The printer. We kept owing them more and more, and they kept saying to us, "You got to pay." Well, we're not going to print anymore, and we would say to them, "Yeah, but if you don't print anymore, we're going to switch to another printer, and you'll never get a penny from us." Um, and so they would say, "Well, what do we have to do?" And I say, "Well, you know, why don't you just print this new, this new book, and we'll get some revenues from it, and then we'll be able to pay you some." <laughs> they played hard, you know, played with us, and we played um, Wow! Um, God, yeah. uh,
0: did you yeah, did you used to have to take medications to do your
1: job? <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Uh, it
0: just sounds horrible. Um, uh, I, what I want in the world is for printers to print the books, you to pay them to print the books, for them to give you the revenue when you sell the books, uh, they not to overcharge you. Correct. You know, that's
1: the current system. Where's
0: Milton Friedman? That would be Milton nice Friedman in the current that but that nothing.
1: That's not free markets. Free markets. <laughs> right. you know, that has nothing to do with. Well, free but, markets yeah, generate yeah. the environment which makes it possible. And in fact, wise, right. And sensible uh, to
0: be corrupt. Well, I mean, in, in your story, there's two sides to it, right? I mean, on one hand they were incentivized to try to bilk you. And especially since you were a smaller press, right? they thought they could get away with it and that you wouldn't have any uh, uh, power to do anything about it. But you told them something which, which Milton Friedman would be so happy about Mm -hmm. if you don't, print our next book, we'll go to another printer, hmm. and you will never get a penny from us. And that shows that the, if in a truly free market, there would be competition, and blah, 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 you, blah. You I'm just trying
1: understand to understand that it does show that, I hope.
0: Well, it, look, obviously, monopolies uh, will uh, form in an, any capitalist system. From a Marxist perspective, you cannot avoid the concentration of capital and monopoly power from emerging in a capitalist society. Um, but... I just want to give my opponents their due, and 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 say, look, when you describe the the, the your ability to go to a competitor as the way that you press press back on these people who are corrupt against you, you are, you know, in that moment taking, advantage taking a, of Milton uh, Friedman's kind of position other, yeah.
1: that there are other firms, you know? yeah, um, yeah, but that's you know, there's more than one aspect. I mean, basically, you know, there was a period in the world where there was sort of closest to free markets right to small mm. active and it was in england at the beginning of the industrial revolution and it was also when you had child labor you know down to the age of what eight and you had you know rats running through every it was yeah, horrendous right. and, and yet because you had the everybody state had the, to compete to right,
0: you know right. and you had the state coming in and doing the enclosure movement and pushing small yeah. farmers off their land. And yeah, yeah. it was a t- terrible nightmare. And like, I'm not advocating in any way.
1: No, you but are too. Much. I'm going to spread it around. <laughs> <laughs> it, you been doing it all your life. Been a, <laughs> a, a, what do you call it? A,
0: a I'm canceled. Fifth,
1: what I'm a criminal. No, no, no. Uh, oh,
0: I'm a, I'm a crypto uh, capitalist or something. And, a- uh,
1: these are too modern for me. It's, <laughs> the, it's the, the sort of soldier for the other side that is a, is it a fifth column. Yeah, right. No, That's, yeah. right yeah. So you've been a fifth column infiltrating. And, and
0: corrupting us all. Yeah, but if so, I'm a Manchurian <laughs> candidate. You know, I mean, I'm, I, I I I don't know it. They, I have handlers somewhere. Okay, they, you they, <laughs> you know, they they hit my Off the hook. And, yeah, yeah. I, I I plead insanity. Um, okay. uh <laughs> So, but but the, the my I just like to think about. uh I, I actually, as a Marxist, as a wannabe Marxist, find it useful. To listen to the propagandists for capitalism, sure. and to take them as seriously as possible when I can, because um they, because Marx's Marx's analysis of capitalism is saying, look, the ca- capitalism and bourgeois society cannot get to the, its own aims. the 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 vision of a, of a the Enlightenment and the capitalism of, of the bourgeois society is one of equity um, and freedom and and so forth and. So, and it's worth remembering that, and worth remembering the arguments made in favor of capitalism. So, because what I worry about is um, a kind of socialism which will rely on small scale, almost familial relations, um, and, uh, and and attitudes of free individuals who, mm. often enough, will end up having to be something like subsistence farmers to have the level of in- independence that it's you know. A,
1: they used to call it bioregionalism. Mm-hmm. So it was basically a stance that said, um, "Small is beautiful, large is horrendous," mm-hmm. and decentralized, meaning not a decentralized institutional framework, but meaning decent, you know, spread uh, and self reliant. Juche um, was in Korea. It's called mm-hmm. anyway, um, uh, and. So you listen to that and think about it, and I agree with you completely that if you want to critique something, the first thing you should be able to do is defend it. In other words, you should be able to make the case as well or better than they make it, um, and then and then critique. But the problem with bioregionalism was that ultimately the heart of it was, let's say we're producing bicycles, we need bicycles, and the heart of bioregionalism was the claim that, If you produce them centrally, so you produce the bicycles, let's say, in Detroit and uh, Denver, I don't know, know, Mm -hmm. and uh, you have to ship the bicycles uh, all over the country because people want bicycles and need bicycles all over the country. Mm -hmm. And that shipping of the bicycles, they would claim, is ecological nightmare. Um, It shouldn't have to be. And so they would say what we should do is produce the bicycles all over the country so that you can get rid of that unnecessary activity Mm -hmm. well if you think about that for five minutes you sort of ask yourself well wait a second if we're producing bicycles all over the country how do we do that there's no steel there's no rubber there's no
0: you have to ship those things in you have to ship those (laughs)
1: things and so it turns out that um uh, because you've given up economies of scale and you've given up uh that it's not it's not even better ecologically much right. less any other way, right? So mm-hmm. you have to think about things to 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 figure them out. But I would agree with you completely, and I'll give myself a little nod here. When we were in the '60s, in the late '60s and going into the '70s, um, Marxism, Marxism, Leninism was a big deal. It's all mm-hmm. over the place. People seemed to have answers for things. They were confident, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I was never much attracted to it. I was attracted to elements of it, for sure, because mm-hmm. elements of it. But as a whole framework, I didn't like it, particularly the Leninist parts of it. Mm-hmm. Um, neither did Robin, and, and who I did lots of writing with. Um, so we wrote a book called "Unorthodox Marxism. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you notice, we hadn't even... Jettisoned the word Marxism, unorthodox Marxism. Mm-hmm. And the first, I don't remember exactly, but maybe four chapters, three or four chapters, something like that, presented the case uh, for Marxism, right? Mm-hmm. So in other words, we were arguing this is an intellectual framework that is best. Um, mm-hmm. And then after that came the critique. Mm-hmm. And I think probably the, um, <laughs> I don't know what to call it, Maybe the biggest compliment I've ever received, in some sense, was to learn that there were various Marxists who were using the first four chapters in their courses to present Marxism, to make the case for Marxism, and then closing the book, right? <laughs> never never dealing with it. And I thought, well, that's good. I, You know, that was the point. We wanted to be able to make the case for Marxism as good or better than Marxists make the case. The I'm gonna, I, you know, it's I've probably. never
0: read that book. I, um, You'd find you it know, one interesting, one of, I think. Now, if would you, if you'll if you give me permission to use your intellectual property, I, I think I'd like to take a look at your book and make a series of videos in response to it. because um, it Do as be, you please.
1: But okay. um, what happens if you discover that you want to make videos advocating it?
0: Oh, well, I'm sure there'll be aspects of it that I will uh, advocate. You know, like, I think that... It's very early, right? Yeah. In other words, yeah. this is back. Well, I don't even know right. when it was. Like I am know. not. I am in amongst Marxists. I am not the typical Marxist in terms of my feelings about the state. For example, like you know, I yeah. I uh, my my orthodoxy comes down to a commitment to what's some call sometimes called I think wrongly, but sometimes called the esoteric Marx, the the side of Marx that talks about abstractions like value and things like that. That's where I get like my my hey, knickers me, in a, in the, a
1: bunch The problem is first of all, who cares what Marx said? I you know that's disaster. How could anybody say such a thing? But I don't care what Einstein said either. What you care about is the living ideas, not that somebody said it right But mm-hmm. a little more than that, look everybody on the left is a Marxist in some sense. Right, Mm. just like everybody on the left is, you know, a uh, everybody who's a physicist is a Newtonian, right? Oh well, except in the sense that you think he's wrong, (laughs) but (laughs) but lots of it is right, and Mm -hmm. so lots of Marxist insights from him and from subsequent generations of Marxists are right. And yeah. are powerful and are valuable.
0: The, the reason why I think you should care what Marx said is if you are trying to critique a, uh, a theory or a system, you should know what it is. Yeah, but that means no. you
1: should know what Marxism is, not what Marx said. You don't critique well, – l- listen to this analogy and tell me if you think hmm. this is true. You don't critique uh, relativity theory, right, by looking hmm. at what Einstein said. Who cares, right? You might look at that for historical reasons, or for biographical reasons, or for, for personal reasons to understand the mind of a person.
0: What about All E through. equals MC squared and that the whole argument through mathematical equations to demonstrate that? If you want to get beyond relativity um, and you start, and I mean, the problem is it's not a fair comparison to, to really to do physics and politics as if they're the same but 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 but, um i think that in the realm of physics you have these mathematical abstractions that people deal with and they focus on and there's very little room in my understanding and i'm not a physicist for a lot of fudging or conflation right and but and in the realm of marxism the whole history of marxism has been a political process of what of and of contesting what uh, what really applies to the world and what doesn't in and Marx, look at so start, what you're suggesting. starting in the late 19th century. And
1: look at what you're suggesting. We yeah. should look not at today's Marxists, at today's framework, but we should look at what somebody was saying, you know, 100 years ago, uh, 150 years ago, when the world was quite a different place. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me, unless you're telling me that, well, Karl and a few other people who lived then were to current marxists the best current marxists they were just head and shoulders about them intellectually they their brain power was so much gr-
0: that's nonsense right it, hmm. uh, that's well okay nonsense. okay well let me just let's see if i can counter that and, i'm not and, sure
1: whether we want to go down this i mean i'm
0: just or. a little bit more but and then i'll okay. stop all right you'll win i'll let you win in the end okay? <laughs> Uh, but uh, here here's here's um what i'll say to that is that okay. again it, it's not so much i i don't know the iq of karl marx okay yeah, i just uh, all i know is that i've read <laughs> and understood capital volume 1 to some degree right yeah. and then i will read contemporary marxists who make what i consider to be errors about pretty, some basic concepts that would come out of Marx's Capital and his critique of political economy, and that right. if you look into the history of why that's happened, the history of why that has happened is not because through a rigorous and uh, uh, philosophically sound, uh, and let alone scientific, uh, you know, process of argumentation right. they've come to different conclusions, but rather that. Uh, uh, there have been conflations of one theory or not, with another. There have been politically expedient moves yeah. uh, that people have made in the in the in the name of party of unity. And so I feel as though you have to go back and say, okay, what was the argument? Not to say, okay, this is holy writ, but just to say, you know, what is the actual argument? And often enough, uh, the kinds of things that get said in the name of Marxism, even by, you know, people who are pretty close to Marx like Rosa Luxemburg are i think you know missing mm-hmm. some of the key arguments in capital and some of the key arguments that would, okay. were developed by Heinrich Grossman and others it, later it, on
1: undoubtedly that's true right mm-hmm. but the the thing the thing that matters that Marx would say matters right is mm-hmm. the extent to which an intellectual framework at a particular point in time highlights what needs highlighting right Leaves out uh, that which should be left out because to pay a lot of attention to it would be a waste of time. uh, Provides the the tools, the concepts that we need uh, to move forward, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that seems to me to be a set of criteria that it makes sense to apply. Now, you want to apply to it to something that you extract from things that were written a long time ago. Okay, that's fine. Uh, But then you have to extract it. You can't keep as you say, fudging, pull out the essence of the intellectual framework and then deal with it. Um, And if the essence of the intellectual framework is so foggy that you can't get a grip on it, well, that's a problem.
0: Yeah, I agree with you.
1: You know, if if you can get a grip on it, then that's fine. And Mm. so that's what we tried to do in that book. And again, that was a long time ago, but we tried to say, look, this seems to us to be the essence of a Marxist intellectual framework of uh, the sort that is popular now and that you can trace back to, you mm-hmm. know, the school of thought. Mm-hmm. And here are the things that we think are wrong with it or are lacking, uh, left out, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't even so- remember. I don't even remember if, if in the book on Orthodox Marxism we already had, um, you know, the third class thing, which to me is the biggest thing. I mean, to me it goes like this in a nutshell. Right, mm-hmm. uh, first big problem with with Marxism as a product, mm-hmm. right? Uh, uh, it's over, it, or it's uh, it's emphasis, it's overemphasis on economics relative to uh, race, gender, and political power. Um, it seems to me that it's more functional in the modern world. It's more likely to provide tools that people can use to understand and change the world uh to not a priori impose that to realize that uh those other domains so that was the first set of concerns that we raised or that's all the way back in 69 70 something like that um and since then i think marxism has in fact modified itself in light of those concerns uh uh-huh. to a considerable extent so you had things like socialist feminism or you know um Uh, Marxist nationalism or anarcho-Marxism or, you know, all these things uh, which were essentially saying, okay, we're going to broaden out the perspective of Marxist thought of this particular thought, call it X thought, whatever you want, right? To take into account these other spheres of life and to give them the, the, the point of priority comparable to the economic point of priority. So that was the first concern. The second concern was more fundamental that it fucks up understanding the economy. Um, Mm -hmm. now that's going to drive most Marxists crazy, but for us, that was the much more fundamental critique. The first critique could be accommodated and it has been to a considerable extent. Mm -hmm. The second critique we thought couldn't be accommodated and it was indeed, um, uh, you know, some things associated with value and so on and so forth. But basically, um, seeing capitalism as essentially a two-class phenomenon instead of a three-class phenomenon. That 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 was a a really crippling uh, um, conceptual blow, leaving out the label of the reality of this thing called the coordinator class. Mm -hmm. And then there arises, uh, then the critique becomes more aggressive, when you follow a Marxist uh, advisory and the Marxist advisory is, if you're trying to understand an intellectual framework and you're trying to understand what it's about and what it's really about, you don't ask its advocates, right? Because they're going to have, you know, that's like asking Bill Clinton, what neoclassic, I mean, what, what you know, bourgeois economics is about. You don't ask mm-hmm. Bill Clinton. You don't ask Elon Musk right? You look at the intellectual framework, and this is Marx. You look at the intellectual framework and you ask yourself, what's missing? What does it leave out? What does it not address? And in whose interest is it to not address that thing? Uh, This is exactly what Robin and I did with with Marxism. And we said to ourselves, whether rightly or wrongly, we said to ourselves, what it leaves out is literally the ex- existence of the coordinator class in the same way that neoclassical economics more or less leaves out the existence of owners, right? It doesn't really mm-hmm. pay much attention to them. So Marxism doesn't pay much attention to this coordinator. Well,
0: you know, and I uh, it
1: becomes I- the ruling class, right? That was the mm-hmm. thing that we, you know, sort of mind-blowing. But Marx was right. If you ask what what the thing what the intellectual framework facilitates. And you look at it this way, you'd, you'd predict that it would facilitate that this group that's not paid attention to, but that has, by its very situation, lots of power, is going to rise to dominance.
0: Can I, I want to I say something about that, and then I want to ask you one more question, and then, sure. then we should probably go. So, um, you know, I'm trying to go on memory of, of how I believe Marx thought about class in In capital and 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 other writings and and uh in a, in a sense, the most important class, the class that actually rules but unconsciously or in an alienated way, is only one, and that's labor uh, and from a Marxist perspective, because labor is a generator of the value that determines the relationships so in society. Maybe this is just gobbledygook. Well, I mean, <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right? I mean, it's right, like I mean, saying, well, it's a truism if you say, well, people who do work generate the value and therefore they you know.
0: Yeah, but I mean, yeah, but th- this is why like understanding the theory matters a bit because uh, it it's not just that they generate the wealth, okay? That that they actually generate the things we use. There's that, but they also generate the social value this abstraction that sets up exchanges that makes things exchange as equivalents that those things that are embodied in commodities right. that measure and, you know and. all this stuff and so they create that value and then there's the there's the capitalist class which claims property the property uh, you know uh, and to control the capital that is both wealth but also an ab- abstract financialized wealth or Money, wealth—they yeah. um, can so that that those two things exist. The form that the capitalist class takes, whether it's private entrepreneurs or states or what have you, to me isn't that important. And there's this other thing that that emerges. And I think Marx has no problem with this either. The people who are not producing value but are being employed as managers but or the, what do you mean as they're as not teachers. producing value? Of course they they're not producing value. They, well, they don't. They neither are reproducing. Like, for I'll give an example of someone who doesn't produce value but does produce something of of practical use. You're an advertising executive. You produce advertising to sell a commodity. Mm-hmm. the The advertising that you you're making is not a commodity in itself. It's not going to go into the market and be exchanged. Um, it is actually uh, it is, but well, well live. I mean, perhaps it depends. But you know, like. Like when they they made the coca-cola I'd like to teach the world to sing song that became a commodity because it was sold in the market on LPS and things but but for most of the time, you know you're holding the it's a kind of financialized property uh, said so it's it's property that you've created and the worker who creates the property is not creating new value. It's only valuable through this like as uh, because someone can claim ownership of it and collect rent on it uh, or what makes
1: a a basketball valuable
0: what makes a a basketball valuable as an exchange you know uh, like as a commodity as an exchangeable commodity is the amount of labor time that it took okay so
1: i mean it would take us a while but i don't think that's true i don't think it has much to do with anything i mean
0: if you reject that if you reject that then then, yeah, we're on a different. I mean, if but wait, you put that, I will not
1: even reject here. it for a second, okay, right? Okay, mm-hmm. okay. So, if I put a lot of time into producing something, right, mm-hmm. but that thing isn't wanted, right, mm-hmm. it's junk, it's True. nothing. I might Marx okay. would say if, the same thing if, right, if anybody rational would say it. so. <laughs> and if, mm-hmm. if, uh, if somebody is uh employed at some workplace, right. Mm-hmm. To produce advertising, meaning uh, designs and uh, song lyric, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's no good, then it's worthless. And the person probably eventually gets fired. If mm-hmm. it's good, it's of value to somebody. It's in. It, it in fact, it doesn't make any sense to me to say. But in any event, if if the way that you think of things, right? Mm -hmm. is confined to viewing ownership on the Mm -hmm. one hand and viewing, I guess, uh, time spent producing. And let's say it's something that's socially valued, right? Instead of waste. Mm -hmm. And that's all you pay attention to. It's powerful for many reasons that we agree on. Mm -hmm. But what you're not paying attention to Is that in the act of producing, um, you're not only producing the basketball or whatever it is, right? You're producing the worker the next day. And Mm -hmm. you're affecting the worker's consciousness and you're affecting the worker's skill level and you're affecting Mm -hmm. the worker's connections to other workers and so Mm -hmm. on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And what if some ways of doing that have dramatic effects on people and elevate them, right? Right. That is precisely – I mean, see, it's not as if we're – we're not saying um, something beyond the economy is causing this third class. We're saying this third class that we're talking about is a natural outgrowth – Partly of the motives of capitalists as the economy grows and they have to have managers and so on and so forth, but it's a natural outgrowth of the effects of the work on the people doing it, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. uh, to a degree, also the training that goes into it.
0: So, no, look, I, I'm, by by putting forward this theory of value that Marx, you know, that I thought I read about in Capital, I'm mean? not, I'm not, yeah, I know, but I'm not critiquing. <laughs> I'm not even intending to level a critique at Paracon per se. I know. That moment. Yeah. Uh, but I, and I do agree with you that if you could accomplish the job complexes that you want to accomplish and you could make the economy function the, the way you envision it functioning, that it would have the impact on workers to empower them and to yeah. expand their realm of creativity and to overcome what I see as this as social abstraction of value, which you see some, as something completely different. What I see but, is
1: getting rid of class division
0: well right it would have to be have to do both yeah i mean um i i think that that's the same thing ultimately but uh i look forward to getting a hold of your book critiquing uh marxism okay (laughs) uh, and 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 making a series of videos about it um we've been talking for about an hour uh and um uh i want to tell everyone though here at the end that they should go ahead and uh purchase no bosses and uh even if they're fans of me and feel like they, maybe they shouldn't because I I'm no longer with the company listen I get royalties on <laughs> Michael's books do <laughs> you really yeah a small royalty on the books that I commissioned. so um so I mean I, if they honor it um but they should so yeah you'll be helping Michael you'll be helping me buy his book um and uh uh you know and it and and then hopefully uh, I'm afraid I have order, to
1: make a little addition here but but don't buy it to help Doug. Don't buy it <laughs> to help me. <laughs> oh. Buy the book because it claims right to put mm-hmm. forth a alternative. You know, there is no alternative. This claims to put forth an alternative. If that's true, it's valuable. If that's false, show that it's false and help to do better. Yeah. Because what we I was do gonna need an alternative.
0: Is, what I was gonna say at the end of this, Michael, is Buy it to help me, buy it to help Michael, and then after you read it, act so that we don't get shit for these things anymore, and and we have a whole new economy. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, okay,